Welcome to the Nigel Lee Archive, brought to you by Living Leadership, where every fortnight we share with you a sermon from the late Nigel Lee to encourage you in your walk with the Lord. Here's today's message. Where do we go from here? Are we on the brink of the Third World War? There have been um, strongly religious riots in Pakistan, in Nigeria, in Indonesia, uh, various places. And there are probably some that would like there to be a clash of civilization. Would it be a war of, of ideology and religion? The Muslim world against the West? Would it be a, um, a war of uh, economics, if you like, the, the poor against the privileged? Jesus spoke um, of a time coming when men's hearts, as he put it, would, would fail them for fear. And over the course of the last fortnight, <clears throat> we've seen uh, on television and radio uh, people panic buying gas masks, We've uh, seen quite a widespread anxiety about anthrax and other forms of bioterror. The story is that in both this country and, and the States, a lot more people, worried people, going to their doctors and so on. We've seen um, major airlines going out of business. We have seen only in the last day or two the prospect of thousands being made unemployed, say in Derby, um, as Rolls-Royce cuts back. They're talking in terms of Three, four, five thousand people in the Rolls Royce company, um, worldwide and many of them in Derby, um, losing their jobs. Not to speak of perhaps hundreds of thousands of, uh, refugees moving about, trying to escape bombs and missiles raining down on them from above in one of the poorest countries uh, on earth. We have seen the prospect of huge festivals like the World Cup or, or some future Olympics um, being cancelled because they've become uninsurable. Uh, even insurers who are in the business of buying up other people's risks and other people's fears have themselves become afraid. Uh, I was having a <clears throat> haircut on Friday. And uh, you know where you sort of pick up the gossip. And the barber said to me that most of the people whose hair he's been cutting in the last few weeks are either have or are thinking seriously of cancelling holidays if it involves um, plane flight. There is an enormous amount of fear and anxiety around. And when Jesus spoke of those things, he said, <clears throat> yes, there will be. There will come a day. But that will just be the beginning. This is the last, this morning, <clears throat> of a series of three that we've been running uh, this month under the title, Where Do We Go From Here? And in week one, the first uh, of the Sundays of October, we were looking at where church life, particularly evangelical church life, is at in the UK. There are some notes of that out on, on the free literature table, if you'd still like it. And um, specifically, what is the state of play of for churches like us in the United Kingdom at the moment, um, for those of us who who hold to a high view of 
of the cross, uh, the resurrection of the Bible. Uh, we take seriously the Lord's command to spread the gospel with love and with acts of mercy as well as words all around the world, including in the Muslim world. Uh, it was mentioned earlier on, but let me show you a copy. There's a, an article, there's a number of them out uh, on the free literature table. I think it's a very good article towards a Christian response to the terrorist attack on America. How do we hold to those values, those gospel, Bible-based values, in a world which seems to be taking some new turns? And um, get a hold of that and read it if you'd like. One of the things that we were learning uh, three, uh, two weeks ago is that there we're all missionaries now. Every person who regards himself as a Christian in this country is living in a country um, where the old culture of Christendom in the West has died. That culture which conferred Christian identity on the way people thought and the way people behaved, all their thought patterns in Britain has gone. We're surrounded now by our own countrymen and, and countrywomen who have, the vast majority of them, never met real Christianity. And they, they simply don't understand it. And therefore, there's an extra and increasing responsibility on us to be strong, to be well taught, to be well thought out, to be prayerful, and to be willing for sacrifice, just like the Christians uh, that we read of in the New Testament. Then we were thinking last week um, of the verses at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we were thinking through, what does that actually mean? Because Christian faith, true Christian faith, will produce action. It isn't a matter simply of sitting and, and letting stuff flow into you. It will produce some kind of behavioral change and response, not just willing to sit around like a sponge. True Christian love will lead to hard work. Paul uses a word that implies um, getting exhausted with the labor of loving the Lord and serving him appropriately. True Christian hope will lead, whatever the persecutions and difficulties and trials that we go through, it will lead to a steely endurance in facing trial. And I want to come back to this idea um, of hope. 1 Thessalonians has more to say about the Christian's hope, where the world is going, where the church is going, how the story is going to end, than I think any other book in the New Testament except perhaps the book of Revelation. The events leading up to the return of Christ and what's going to happen then, that is particularly unveiled for us in, in 1 Thessalonians. So under the same title, Where Do We Go From Here? Uh, and the same book, I want to look at some of Paul's teaching about the big, the big picture, the big future. And um, there are a number of references. It's fascinating when you look through, if you were to read through 1 Thessalonians, you notice that the last verse or two of every single chapter of this letter is to do with the future, to do with the second coming. It, the whole focus is on the return of Christ. That is the climax to which each of the five chapters come. Paul talks about something, and then he says, but that's where we're going. Paul will talk about something else, and say, because of that, 
this is how you ought to think and how you ought to behave. Then you move on and talk about something else, but bring that too to the climax um, in the end of that chapter. So we're not today looking at some of the comparatively small details of uh, Saltisford's present needs. We were thinking perhaps a little bit more about those things, or at least they were in the background of what I was saying uh, the last two weeks. Uh, what are we going to call the new church? Or will we have a new office somewhere? Or um, what about the evening service uh, under the new world order? Uh, those kind of things. We are not thinking about those kind of things. But if we believe that this world has a future destiny, if we believe that God has a plan for the nations which nobody can thwart, if we believe that Christ is going to come back, and he's not going to come back to some smoldering ash heap, spinning deadly through space, somehow ruined and unusable. Psalm 2 speaks of Christ receiving his inheritance in the nation. People are going to be alive and ready to serve him, and the place will not have been destroyed. If we believe these things, as I do, then how should we live? How should we think? Uh, what should be the consequences um, for the way we, we are? Now, let's look at chapter 1 uh, and, and read the first of, of that uh, little series of verses. Chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. A new hope. A new hope to look forward to. Paul says, people tell us how you turned to God, you Thessalonians, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his son from heaven who will be raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. In those few verses, as we thought uh, two weeks ago, Paul gives us a brilliant, simple description of true Christian conversion. And it involves three steps. One, you turned. You turned to set your face toward God. Two, you are serving. You are serving him now in, in love. And three, you wait. You wait expectantly. You think about this daily. You wait for the Son of God to return from heaven. This meant for those Thessalonians a total switch in their allegiance. And in many countries today, in, in parts of Africa, in parts of Asia, and um, South America, it means a decisive break with idols, uh, with, with charms, with other things that they may have tied around their necks or put around their wrists or, or got up in special places in their home or whatever. You imagine these Thessalonians to whom the gospel had originally come around about 49 or 50 AD. Mount Olympus was and still is about 50 miles away to the south. Clearly visible on a, on a sunny day in northern Greece. And it was believed uh, to be the home of Zeus and the other gods, they all lived up there and quarreled and lusted after each other and had banquets and did all the things that Greek gods do as a projection of the life of the Greeks, I think. And the Thessalonians listened to the gospel and they looked at the life of Paul and they heard this stuff and they considered the evidence and they thought this is true and they said, I'm not going to believe in those gods anymore. I'm turning. I'm not going to believe in those idols. I will no longer be in bondage to those kind of spirits and they turned away from all that stuff to serve the living and the true God. Now, in modern westernized Britain, it's not that people have no idol. People all over the world, however sophisticated they may imagine themselves to be, they have idols. There are many, many God substitutes 
that exercise the kind of power and controlling influence over people's minds that idols do in other cultures. There is in many, many people a selfish ambition for more and more money and what money then leads you to. Or an addiction to sport or television or food or, or just popularity, having people think well of you. There's an obsession in some people. There was a case in the newspaper I read two days ago, was it, or yesterday, about some man who's had years, decades of war with his neighbors because he's completely obsessed about his home and every blade of grass and every little lick of paint and, and, and people who live next door live scruffy. And he, he can't abide it. And he has, he's made a, an idol out of his own home and people make idols out of their home. They make them out of their families. They make them out of their privacy or their own comfort. And sometimes people think, well, if I give up this or that in my life, what will happen to me? How will I survive? They're enslaved. And there is no other word for it. These Thessalonians turned and their lives began to be lived in a completely new direction. There will be different idols from which people have to turn today and there will be different forms in which they express their service. But all true, true Christians from, from Jesus to now and right the way until the Lord returns, they all have this common. The Thessalonians, the, the, the Nepalis, uh, the people in Afghanistan, the believers there, and us, we're to have the same sense of we're, we're looking and expecting Christ to return and he could come back at any moment. It's the new hope. History has a safe ending. We do not believe that the thing is going to descend into some kind of a war which is out of God's control. That's how he, he ends that first chapter. You got converted. It was a true conversion. And now your whole perspective has changed. You're looking forward <coughs> with a new hope. And then in the second chapter, he begins to talk about a new motivation. The kind of thing that drives him. Let me read you both verses 9 and verse 19 from that chapter. Paul says, surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil, our hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. And then verse 19. What is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and, and joy. Paul says, hey guys, you remember, I worked hard, I bust a gut. Why? In order that you might do well. Paul clearly expected to be able to recognize the Thessalonians when he met them in heaven. People are going to be recognizable. This is both an encouragement and a discouragement. Because some of us, you know, are really looking forward to a resurrection body that would be so significantly different that we actually, you know, would, would hardly be recognizable at all. And I tell you, the older you get, the more that becomes a reality. He, however, expected to be able to recognize the Thessalonians, and he expected that the quality of his work amongst them would also be recognizable. The people would be able to look at those Thessalonians, see how fine they were in faith, how well established, how taught, and say, that's Paul's work. How well he did. Paul expected the Lord himself. Uh, but you see, we will all face the judgment seat of Christ. This is not something that you need to be afraid of unless you are a lazy old so-and-so as a believer, which is a disgrace and you ought not to be. This is not about judgment. 
The judgment seat of Christ, as the New Testament describes it, is for believers. And it is not a question of, of us being dismissed or losing salvation. There is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus, says Romans chapter 8. It's a great promise. Now, this, what this is about is the, the possibility of the Lord saying to you, well done. Approving, valuing, appreciating your service. Well done, good and faithful servant. And earlier in chapter 2, Paul has pictured himself using four illustrations. He said, I, I, I'm a steward in verse 4. I'm, I'm a man approved to be entrusted with the gospel. He said, actually, it's very interesting. Paul says, I'm like a mum. I'm like a good mum. Uh, verse 7, he said, we were gentle. We were like a mother caring for her little children, delighted to share not only the gospel, but even our very own lives as well. And he says, I was like a dad to you. I was a father, verse 11. We dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging and setting standards and supporting and exhorting and so on. I was like a herald, verse 13. I had a responsibility to proclaim the message that I was given, to go before and, and teach the gospel. Now, each of these responsibilities has um, in it the possibility at looking at what you've done and feeling satisfaction. You know how if you're doing some decorating and you, you know, you, you paint a room and you get it all right and, um, papers hanging and, and there comes a moment finally, finally when you think, I've done. And you get a chair and you sit down and you get a cup of tea and you look at what you've done. Smell it. It looks good. Unless you're a, you're a complete perfectionist where for, you know, for decades you'll go on finding little tiny fiddly things. Paul says, as I preach the gospel, I can look at the impact of it. As, a, as someone who's caring for Christians, as a mother and father, I can look at what's been done. Nine times in this letter, astonishing, nine separate occasions, Paul says, you know how I live. You know the work I put in. You know the example that I live. Again, and nine times in five chapters, you, you know what I taught you. And you've been learning and growing and considering. And as a result of this example and this teaching and this mothering and this fathering, you will grow up to the point where, when the Lord comes, will be my, my glory, my crown. There are many other crowns referred to in the New Testament, but this is going to be one of them. The Lord is going to say, when I look at those Thessalonians, Paul, you did well. What a challenge that is to us in, in our own lives and, and work. The way we serve the Lord. The people we connect with. Those we're responsible for. Those we teach. The Sunday schools that we try and look after. The kids that we love and do all we can to, to convey Christ to them. New motivation. The Lord is coming back, says Paul, and I'm looking forward to that day. My glory, my crown. And then thirdly, at the end of chapter 3, he's talking about new standards. Um, let me read to you verses 12 and 13. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Actually, verses 11, 12, and 13 
um, are a prayer. They are three sentences. I didn't um, put number 11 up, but three sentences, each starting, may God do this, may God do that. And there they are facing persecution. They're facing danger. There had been riot. Paul had been kicked out of the town within just a few weeks of the gospel coming there and starting. And Paul doesn't uh, pray about those kind of things. He ignores all that. Instead, he prays, number one, for their growth in love. Oh, Lord, may those Thessalonians, whatever they face, may they grow in love towards one another. Secondly, may, may their hearts be strengthened in faith and understanding. Thirdly, he prays for their progress in holiness and Christ-likeness. These are things that we are to, to grow in also. And all that he prays because the Lord is coming. He's going to look and he's going to evaluate and, and so on. You imagine the Lord coming and asking us questions about our hearts, about our motives. We stutter and we fall and we sometimes accept low standards. Um, sometimes our heart can be so full of crossness and cynicism and pride. And Paul says, I, I'm praying for you, my dear friend. I'm praying that you may know a growing and then an overflowing love, first towards each other, and then overflowing towards those out beyond the borders and boundaries of the church, towards the people outside. We don't start off that way, do we, as, as Christians? It sometimes strikes me that the natural state of, of a normal, unconverted, non-Christian human being is very like that, is like a sort of a grumpy, stroppy teenager. You know, you know, Perry in, in Harry Enfield. No? There's rows of South Africans there. The slides is there. This church is filling up with South Africans. Hey, it's, it's great, but we, we need to introduce you to um, some specialist aspects of British culture. There is a comedian, and one of the characters that he does is, is a really obnoxious, pimply, uh, stroppy teenager. You see, nothing is ever right. Uh, well, so often we are, we are like that. And Paul is, is saying, I'm praying for you that God will work within you. You see, work within you to make you beautiful, to make you like himself, to grow you, uh, because he's coming back. And the fact that the Lord is coming back, I mean, we can get into, into crossness with people and we can get stroppy with people, but then you think about it. And the fact that the Lord is going to come back and might come today and might come tomorrow must be allowed to affect the way you, in the long run, respond. Lord, forgive me for, for my rottenness. Forgive me that I'm a bit sour. But Lord, I don't want you to come back and find me like this. I want to repent. I want to do whatever's necessary to grow towards holiness and a strengthened heart and, and so on. He's coming back. And then fourthly, New confidence. And uh, now we, we look at a passage, well-known passage, um, in chapter 4. Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, as he puts it, or we don't want you to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. 
according to the Lord's own word. Now, I'm quoting Jesus to you, says Paul. This is the Lord's own revelation. We tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven, and with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, the dead in Christ will rise first, and after that we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Paul says, let me tell you about those that have already died. And, and fit, some have been died, have died because of persecution, some just because of old age. And let me fit that in to what is going to happen now in, in the future and uh, fit it in with the return of Christ. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant. That's one danger. Nor do I want you when you face sadness and grief and bereavement. I don't want your experience of that to be the same as those that have no savior and no hope. He doesn't say you mustn't grieve, don't you cry. No, crying is something that Jesus did when he stood by the graveside of his friend Lazarus. But I don't want you to grieve in a way that is just the same as everybody else. Jesus said he's, well, he said he was going to come back twice, didn't he? He said, I'm going to come back on the third day after they put me to death, and then I'm going to come back in a really big way. And he did the first, exactly on time. Early that morning, he was back. As an evidence that when he says things like that, he keeps his word. He hasn't come back yet the really big time, but because he did the first, which was impossible to a human to come back from the dead, I believe he's going to do the second. He will one day open the heavens and come. And, says Paul, he gave us a few details. You do sometimes meet Christians who say, well, I, I, I just believe he's coming back, and I'm not really interested in any details or any chronology. It only causes splits and divisions. Um, but apparently Paul wants to give us some details and some chronology. First, the Lord himself will, go, will come from heaven. He's coming. It's personal. He's going to come, not sending some angel. There will be a loud command. I suspect that this will be God's own voice. God the Father spoke from heaven at the baptism of Christ. He spoke again at the transfiguration. He spoke again uh, to endorse the cross, John 12, before Christ went to the crucifixion. And I believe he will speak again when Christ comes back um, in the future. And we will hear the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet. Secondly, when he starts to come, he will bring with him all those who have fallen asleep in him the believers who have already died. Perhaps he says, he's going to bring them. Can you imagine Christ coming with granny? With the child that you lost? With the co-worker that died? With the people that you've not seen for years? They've been safe with him and he's bringing them. And we read thirdly that the dead in Christ will rise first. Now what's happening here is that the bodies of those believers that have died will be reunited with their previous owners. This, this is the miraculous recreation of people. And maybe they have degenerated into dust. But do you believe what Genesis says about God creating the original people out of dust? He will do it again. He will reunite people with their body, remake them by the same process. Next, those that are still alive at that time, I don't know whether it's going to be us or not. 
I'm happy either way. I don't, I quite like it to be, I'd, I'd like it to be caught up into the air, wouldn't you? Boy, that would be a surprise to people. This is what um, theologians have called the rapture. It, it comes from the, the, the Latin word meaning to, to snatch up or, or take away. But Paul says, then those that are alive, after the dead in Christ have risen, then those that are alive, then the next thing that happens is all the believers will meet with the Lord in the air. No mention of unbelievers yet. They haven't been mentioned yet in the chapter. They come later to face judgment. And then it says, from then on, all the believers will be with the Lord forever. Forever. Never again separated. What a prospect that's going to be. There's a sound to hear. There's a miracle to experience. There's a meeting with the Lord to enjoy. And then there's an eternity to begin. Now, encourage one another with that, says Paul. Go on. Divvy people up a bit with that. It's great. You're to encourage each other with these details. These, these indications of some bare bones of chronology are never designed to create fear or, or terror or speculation about things that we're not told. It's to dispel ignorance and it to stop us grieving in the same way that others grieve. A new confidence. Because we know that God has things under control. He'll work it all out. And then finally, at the end of chapter 5, I thought for a long time what to call this. I called it under new management. Let's read verses 23 and 24. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and will do it. Do you see how God is called at the beginning of the passage the God of peace? And at the end of our passage, he is the God of faithfulness. And between those two unchangeable things about God comes his plan for us, what he's going to do with us. Um, we are tripartite beings. We are spirit, we are soul, we are body. It's our spirit that enables us to commune with God. Our soul has to do with our emotions, our, our desires, our affections. Uh, if I were to define it like this, it, it's the unseen reality of who we are. And then the body, well, that's obvious. That's, that's the house in which the spirit and, and the soul live. And says Paul, because he is a God of peace, a God of reconciliation, a God of forgiveness, and because he's absolutely faithful. He is going to keep your spirit, your soul, and your body. He's going to keep you and protect you and teach you and preserve you for his coming. Where do we go from here? The really big picture is that we go to be with Christ, to be with him and enjoy him forever. And that needs to motivate our relationships and our attitude and everything. Are you ready? Are you ready? When Trisha goes away for a while, which she doesn't do very often, but she has done, the house gets in a terrible mess. And when the time draws near for her to return, I'm busy. I'm hoovering and sorting and cleaning 
because she's coming. I, I take it out of my father because I remember watching my father once and my mother had been away and the poor old man, I mean, he's 90, what, going around hoovering desperately trying to get this house ready and sort, you know, clean the bits of soap and dirt off the thing. I had a phase in my life where I used to spend a lot of time playing chess against an automatic, you know, you play and it, it plays back. And I'm not very good at it, but it, I've done it quite a bit. And it used to sit in, in the living room. And I would be doing this and slightly ashamed of doing it. And Trisha would pull up outside in the car and I would go down onto my knees and crawl back into my study because she was coming. And I didn't want to be caught, you know, wasting time playing chess. Losing, probably. It has 16 levels and I've only ever got up to about three. Take that to the higher level. The Lord is coming back. He's given us so much of his love and his teaching and his care. Are you ready? We need to allow this truth to percolate down into our attitudes and relationships and just let it work there to help us do better, to serve him better. He's coming. Where do we go from here? You know. We go to be with him. Amen. Time's gone. We're going to end simply now with a moment or two of quiet. And if there are folk that would like to talk over some of this, to, to pray about something, maybe there are some aspects of life or business or relationships or plans that don't quite fit. That even as we've been thinking about these things, the Word of God has been just touching, scraping, tapping, and you would like someone to talk with, either come and see me, or sit quiet, and perhaps a member of the prayer team would come and talk with you, just stay where you are, while others go for drinks and coffee. Let's pray. What a Christian thing it is, oh God, our Father, to be profoundly challenged by such encouraging prospects. To be not made afraid of a future that's frightening. But to be challenged deep in our souls by something that is wonderfully glorious. Help us, Lord, to live as a church with all the practical affairs that we need to deal with. Yet in the light of, of the promises that we have. The future that we know is going to unfold. We pray, Lord, for those that have got in this next week heavy challenges at work. We think of Jonathan flying out to a war zone. We think of others that are facing big things at home. Lord, help us to quietly apply the great truth that we've been considering this morning into the nitty-gritties of, of our attitudes and relationships day by day. For your name's sake. Thank you for joining us today. The Nigel Lee Archive is brought to you as a podcast by Living Leadership. For more information on the Nigel Lee Archive or Living Leadership's other ministries, please visit www.livingleadership.org. God bless.